Jesse, how's it going? It's good, except I've got some uh, perturbing reader feedback. Uh Uh-oh, what's that? Okay, I'll try not to get emotional. Uh, This is just through our contact form. Ouch. That's the first sentence. Ouch. Ouch. Listening to your podcast with Ethan Waters. As an educator who often uses your podcast, I was shocked with your comments about, quote, bongo drums, end quote, <laughs> end quote the final solution. I, I assume that this reader is referring to something that you said. Well, let me read the rest and then we'll, we'll explain. Uh, as a member of blah, 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 identifying details, I do not feel comfortable recommending your podcast to students or teachers when this type of banter is in your podcast. Very disappointed with your lack of sensitivity to modern issues of inequality and prejudice. Uh, bongo drums was, was, it was a joke you made. It was like us riffing on this idea that there's like white culture on the one hand and then quote ethnic culture on the other. It was not like a, a anti-African tribesman joke. It was, uh, in context, I don't think offensive. As for the final solution, this is also <laughs> a joke you made. I will say I do regularly, uh, sling anti-lesbian insults your way. So I think, Part of our banter does include jokey anti-Semitism and anti-lesbian stuff. Uh, I guess I would say the podcast is marked explicit and that, that if this person had come to me beforehand, it's like, hey, would you recommend your podcast for like young students? I definitely wouldn't. So, yeah, I mean, we use uh, profanity in the podcast, so I'm not sure that most teachers would like play this for their students anyway, um, for good reason. Speaking of the final solution joke, I got a, a text message from someone I, I won't, I won't reveal the other day that said that, um, this person got in trouble at work because she referred to in a meeting, she referred to something as a final solution, not in like a jokey way at all. She just said like, okay, that would be like the final solution. Um, and she got to talking to it work, work, work for that. That's, uh, yeah, that's not that's not good. It's very strange, but this all fits into our theme of the show today. We are bringing a special midweek episode because there's so much fucking drama happening that we couldn't wait any longer to talk about it. No, and a lot of that drama surrounds the question of uh, how harmful words are. Exactly. We'll get to that in a moment. First of all, this is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single, and uh, put away your bongo drums because this is going to be quite a ride. Indeed. All right, so Jesse, where do you want to start with this? Um, other than retiring from podcasts entirely. Okay, so the basic rundown is that two uh, well-regarded in terms of journalism, people just left the New York Times. One of them is Andy Mills, who's one of the top audio producers there, responsible, largely responsible for The Daily and Caliphate. The other is Don McNeil Jr., who was a longtime science reporter who really took a star turn with his coronavirus coverage, particularly on The Daily. Uh, both of these departures, I believe, were technically resignations. Both of them are questionable, and both of them might, depending on how you evaluate the evidence, reveal certain things about both the Times and, and journalism writ large right now. So, Katie, which one do you want to start with? Let's start with Andy. Okay. Uh, this is complicated. Andy Mills is a friend of mine. Um, I met him, I guess, a few years ago now when uh, my Atlantic story on trans kids came out and a subset of journalists were like really, in my view, my very biased view, bias will be a theme of this episode. In my biased view, they were sort of really trying to destroy my career and reputation uh, rather than respond to the words I actually wrote. Andy reached out to me and he invited me to an event uh, at his place. And, um, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, Andy... 
worked in public radio. He worked for WNYC. He worked for Radio Lab, and then he got picked up by the New York Times, where I think he pretty quickly climbed the ranks to basically be one of the top audio people. He is my understanding is he's largely responsible for both um, the Daily, which is one of the most successful podcasts in the world, and for Caliphate. Now, okay, we're going to spend less time on Andy than Don, in part because as as his friend. I'm not going to pretend that I can separate my friendship from this guy from this whole controversy. And and I think it would be a mistake, A, for us to just ignore it and not mention it because I'm friends with him, and B, to pretend that we can treat it like we can treat any other story. So, okay. So so basically, you know, I think if you've listened to the podcast, The Daily, you've heard Andy's name, and sometimes you've heard Andy's voice. But um, The Cut did an article – in uh, 2018 by Boris Kochka, who I also knew at New York Magazine. He edited some of my books stuff. Um, uh, this is just a headline. Do as I say, not as I do. WNYC tolerated sexual harassment and bullying for years. Now its CEO must satisfy angry staffers without sliding into an overzealous panic. And Andy was not the main character in this story, but he's sort of viewed as this like younger staffer who had some complaints against him. And... um you know, what it comes down to is that Mills was known as one of the, the mentees of Robert Krulich, who's sort of the, the radio lab legend. And, um, there were just some complaints about his workplace conduct. The allegations are that he would, um, you know, d- didn't always treat women well. Here's one line. He'd interrupt work conversations to tell her she was pretty, come up behind her desk and give her unsolicited background. And this is about a, a coworker or? Yes, that's about a coworker. Now, um, People can – we'll just have to read the article for themselves. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Andy says that there were a lot of inaccuracies in this article. When I, I reached out to him just to like let him know we were going to talk about this, he said there were six corrections. I was like, whoa, that's a lot of corrections. I went down to the bottom and the cut indeed says, this story has been updated to more accurately describe the circumstances around Adara Uloji's departure from WNYC and Andy Mills's case. I love New York Magazine. It will always have been like the place that gave me my best job in mainstream journalism, but like that obscures the number of corrections. So I have no reason to think Andy is not being honest that there were six corrections. Andy also said that the bankrupt thing, this we're only getting his side of it, but he said that the full context of that was the person he gave the bankrupts to was the, the woman dating his roommate and that she said they were non-sexual, that it was not a sexual thing. Of course, she then complained about it. So obviously that tells us there was some miscommunication or whatever there. Okay. That is, that is the basic rundown. And I'm not, I'm not leaving the accusations hanging out there. We'll return to them in a minute. Point is, uh, at the time this came out, Andy was already at the New York Times. The New York Times was made aware of these complaints against him. Boris argues it wasn't a full enough investigation. Uh, once at the Times, he, he is very successful. I think the beginning of the end of his career at the Times came after Caliphate came under fire. Uh, for basically relying, sort of relying, because I believe they, they sort of say repeatedly they're not sure this Canadian jihadist is, is legit, but his whole story fell apart spectacularly, which cast a huge shadow on Caliphate, which leads to Rukmini Kalamachi, the reporter who was part of the two-person team who really put Caliphate together with Andy. Andy was involved reportorially, not just as a producer, uh, but she was reassigned and investigated. Around the same time that news came out, Andy got to not only produce, but host an episode of The Daily. And that was when this surge of complaints just exploded on Twitter, both about the fact that he was sort of allowed to work at The New York Times and what was perceived 
as a sort of differential in treatment between Rukmini Kalamachi, uh, who is a woman, and Andy Mills, who is a white man. Uh, I could be missing something here. Does that jive with your understanding of the basic sort of windup of this story? Yeah. So after what happened with Caliphate, the podcast, is that it turned out just, I think, for people who haven't been following this closely, it'll it'll be helpful to be a little bit more specific. So the main source for this show was a Canadian citizen who said that he had been a member of ISIS. Throughout the course of the show, they made it incredibly clear that they didn't trust this guy. And so part of the theme of the show was like, it, and it was a, a very well done show, was like questioning what you can know, what is real, what is not real. So after it was revealed by the Canadian authorities or the Canadian authorities are prosecuting this guy for basically pretending to be a terrorist, pretending to be a member of ISIS. Um, and I think there's some questions about whether – like the questions still remain about like how much of what he said was real and how much of it was, was fake. There he there were lots of incentives for him, him to lie in different situations. It's complicated. Uh, after – anyway, after uh, the Canadian government pressed charges against this guy, um, Andy uh, and the, the Caliphate team had to give back a Peabody. Um, I don't think that was – and the New York Times also investigated this. I don't think that was actually the appropriate response because if you listen to the show, it's incredibly clear throughout the show that they are questioning his uh, – they're questioning his authority. They're questioning his his legitimacy the entire time. Um, it's certainly not what you want as a reporter to, to find out that your sources uh, may be full of shit. But – they make it incredibly clear. So this was not, this really shouldn't have been a shock to anybody who listened to the show in its entirety. Um, so that happened. In terms of, of Andy hosting the daily after this came out, um, that he did host, he did, they did a, an episode with Delilah, this, uh, this like famous radio woman who actually lives out here close to me. Um, but this was like a, a Thanksgiving show or a Christmas show. And so people were pissed that after, you know, his co-host gets reassigned, they have to get back this Peabody. Um, they were pissed that he was given this opportunity. The people who were pissed about this mostly work in media. So I'm sure that they are aware that holiday shows are often recorded way in advance. This is not something that's evergreen. Like you would, or it, it, it's not something that's timely. Like that's pegged to a news story. It was, a, it was an evergreen story. And so what probably happened, and actually I'm, I'm sure what happened is that they recorded this show before this stuff happened. Um, because that's just how like you plan it, you plan in advance for vacation weeks, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's true, not just of, of radio shows, but I remember when I, yeah, Print, writing editorials right. for newspapers, you'll, you'll, you'll build up some in the bank so that people can have time off, basically. Right. So I don't know when, uh, when like they recorded this episode with Delilah, but this idea that like, you know, uh, instead of, you know, Andy being punished for, for his, his role in the, in the caliphate fuck ups, the presumed caliphate fuck ups. Uh, he was given the opportunity to host the show. Well, we don't actually know that that's what happened because the timing is, could be totally different. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's fair to say we should both plead complete and utter ignorance as to whether there is anything to the charge that Andy and Rukmini were treated differently. Uh, totally. after the, yeah, we just, we don't know. And so that, and, that and neither does anybody valid, else. Neither does anyone else that, that could be a valid critique. What is not really valid is the idea that like, as you're saying, we don't know when this show was produced. It takes a long time to produce, like, yeah. So that's the basic run-up. And and once this exploded on Twitter, 
it was both a recitation of the charges from the Boris Kochka piece in the cut, but I think also some new people came forward. These were people offering firsthand named allegations against Andy. So, so some of the, these, these allegations range. Some of them are like, he talked shit about coworkers, which is rude, but is, is, I mean, can you imagine if you could get disciplined for talking shit about other people in media? Would any of us survive? I mean, come on. Seriously, that is not a fireable offense at all. That's not even a discipline offense. Like, that's just like normal fucking behavior. Yeah. And to be fair, we don't, we don't, we don't think he, had to leave because of that. We're just talking no. about the, the range of quality of the allegations against him. But the other thing that kept coming up is this is directly from the cut article um, from uh, WNYC's investigation. For example, the final report includes Mills pointing a mock gun at his head in meetings when a female colleague spoke. Uh, I'm constantly doing that when I'm recording with you, Katie, just like pew, pew, pew. I'm doing it right now. Yeah, I've got I've actually got a noose around my neck right now. That would obviously be very rude to do in public. Not a good way to treat a colleague uh, and spilling beer on another for daring to call him a hipster. It says spilling. Yeah, I think it's more like he poured beer on her head. Uh, and there- it, that's the worst of the things that I that I read about it was that at some like work happy hour or some some night out or whatever with colleagues um and the the woman who who he did this to her name's Kelsey Paget she's come out and and attached her name to this um she says that he poured a beer on her head which is super fucked up yeah it's it's absolutely fucked up um and you know it's, and he was disciplined uh, for it right yes uh yeah he well, well, we'll get to sort of what Andy said about it. But anyway, so all these allegations on Twitter and and ranging in quality, a lot of them named, which to me is like a different situation than uh, the shit you and I are dealing with. Where people are like, people are saying X, Y, Z. It's definitely different if people are willing to put their name on allegations. Okay. A lot of pressure ensues on the Times to do something about this. Um, keep in mind, the Times knew about all the stuff that actually happened at WNYC when he was fired. End result is Andy is is pressured to resign. Andy puts out a statement that we will link to alongside all this, saying that in some cases the online discussion was ex- distorted or exaggerated. Uh, I'm sympathetic to that idea, but he, you know, he admits that's not hard to believe. No, it's not. He admits to sort of pouring the beer on the colleague's head and to not treating people well, especially in the past. He says that since he's been at the Times, there's been no issues, and I don't think anyone has presented evidence there have been issues so the the sort of pro andy story is this thing happened at wnyc he was disciplined for it whether or not you think he was disciplined enough or believe boris kochka's view that it wasn't sufficient investigation as andy points out in his note he sort of had a promotion uh taken away from him it did sort of throw up a minor roadblock in his career and and in andy's view the times hires him knowing this and then is is so happy with his work that he climbs the ladder and as recently as december he gets a promotion and he gets this like glowing email that he posted without mentioning their name from a higher up in the audio department so andy's argument is that he was basically fired because of an online uproar and that it is procedurally unfair i'm his friend so all I can say is, A, I, I am somewhat sympathetic based on the information we have. B, I'm hopelessly biased. C, if someone poured a beer on my head or, or pointed a mock gun at their head while I was talking, I would be very angry with that person. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm conflicted on this. Yeah. I'm conflicted in the, in the sense that I'm, it's a friend and I'm not going to like fucking use my platform to when a friend is at his lowest point to like, 
throw him under the bus and, and drive over him. Like, I just, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have that in me. I'm not super conflicted about this. I've never met Andy, although when, when all of this was unfolding, I was looking at what people were saying on Twitter and I searched his name and I found it's someone, I don't know who this person was, but someone had taken screenshots of his, of the tweets that he had liked and had put together this like montage of tweets of mine that Andy had liked. Tweets were bitching about NPR's coverage of race. Um, so that right. makes me like him. Um, this. Well, but that's, that's sort of what I mean about how like with any of these online outrage campaigns, there can be true things, but people then any conceivable grievance, including purely political ones. Right, right. Uh, just gets lumped. Yeah, in. I mean, this was sort of a guilt by association. Andy Mills, like Katie Herzog's problematic tweets about NPR's race coverage. Um, that said, like, to me, I think this is a pretty, like, clear cut case. I mean, he was forced out of his job for things that happened at a previous place of work. And I'm really uncomfortable with that. He wasn't fired, but he was apparently, you know, he was investigated, he was punished, and then years later, he's fired for something, things that happened at a previous workplace. That seems like a very dangerous precedent to me. I mean, you know, should I be fired from this podcast because I stole from my the coffee shop that I worked at when I was 18? Wait, what? I know. I, I ba- like bagels. Bagels? So it was a, it was a hate crime, too? It, it was. It, they were day old. Oh, okay. Well, that, uh, <laughs> does that count? I can't fire you. Honestly, I need you for the money. So you're off the hook. You can, you definitely can't fire me because I'm your boss. Um, but I think that's a I think that's a bad precedent. And Andy wasn't fired. He resigned, but he resigned under pressure. Yeah, that, and we'll get to this too with the McNeil case. But like, part of the problem is when you are pressured to resign, which can sometimes be accompanied by money, and what the company is paying for is to just make this whole process cleaner and easier. It does sort of let a, a major corporation, which is the New York Times, off the hook and not have to explain its reasoning. And of course, you know, the person resigning will gain some benefits from resigning rather than being fired. So it's not like they don't get anything, but it does. It makes these situations significantly more complicated, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, although that said, we, we've, we've seen instances where people are fired and the Times also doesn't explain that. It just, it seems to put less pressure on them to explain and you all you'll see people being like what's the big deal they weren't fired they resigned it's like well people know that's sort of bullshit like if your employer is saying you should probably resign that's different from like i'm gonna resign to go travel the world if somebody is holding a gun to your back and tells you you know and tells you to walk the plank like i'm sorry i'm mixing metaphors here but like sometimes (laughs) (laughs) if someone is holding a gun full of money and they're like, I will shoot this into your bank account if right, you reside. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the other thing is like, what happens next for Andy? Because this is the sort of, uh, you know, anybody who Googles him, this will be the first thing that comes up. So, you know, he's, I don't know what's going to happen to him. I mean, this, like, this is one of the problems is that, and we'll talk about this with the Don O'Neill case as well. McNeil. McNeil. Um, you sort of become persona non grata. Yeah. And I mean, people are going to, gonna get mad at me for saying this but i think andy was like sort of recognized as a genius in terms of audio storytelling which yeah people flatten things a little bit like i okay i absolutely think it's true that they're um i one time had a boss basically say to me that he part of the reason this is someone who's important to my career not not recently i don't want people to speculate but basically imply that like we were both from sort of like upper middle class suburbs and had similar backgrounds he didn't say quite that but he used like a similar some sort of cultural reference that made me seem like made it seem like he was looking out for me because we were similar, which is uh, homophily. That's like a natural part of being human. It's also part of the reason he was a gamer. He was a gamer. 
Dude, I saw you tearing it up on uh, fucking <laughs> Overwatch, and I was just like, I got to look out for this kid. Um, the point is, when I say Andy's a genius, people are going to be like, well, you know, he's a white man. White men are treated as geniuses. But I, I sort of think you don't quickly climb the ranks of something that's so skill-based as producing audio stories unless you're good at your job. The idea that he was just like – lofted skyward on the wings of his white privilege might be a bit of an oversimplification yeah i mean the reality is also like there was a time a very long period in american history where white men probably were chosen over uh you know equally qualified minorities because of racism or sexism or whatever in media right now and in other sort of you know uh knowledge industry jobs that time i believe has ended because there is a huge per push to diversify and i don't think there's anything wrong with diversifying radio in particular public radio in particular has been way too white for way too long that's definitely true absolutely um and so but i i do not think that like in this day and age you benefit like white men benefit from from their place on this like uh, in the hierarchy because right now everybody wants to diversify so i agree and i disagree as always i'm a nuance monger i i think you're right all else being equal just just okay so so in terms of big like studies that economists have run i don't know how many of these are recent having a white sounding name does benefit you in terms of like callbacks and stuff i i had to look into this for my sure. book it's very it's true uh, and it's a sure. decent size effect size i think if you restricted it to media based on both of our experiences yeah. the idea that a white guy in a pile of resumes was similarly qualified uh non-white guys it is just strikes me as insane. Like I've been in the room for those hiring decisions. Places, places actively want to diversify. So these big studies economists run that involve like random HR firms and real estate firms, I bet are different within media, which is incredibly liberal. Places want to diversify where I do think being white gives you an sort of maybe accidental advantage is like, um, uh, Andy Mills' relationship with with Robert Krulowicz. It could be Andy was was talented, but he also came from this uh vaguely similar background as Robert Krulowicz. Just in, and they could just. I do think we tend to be drawn to people who are similar to us sometimes in superficial ways. And that in terms of like mentorship opportunities, which is one of the things black journalists complain about the most, rightfully so. It is just. It would be nice if we could all be mentored by whoever and effortlessly talk to whoever. But but you could see in that sense white guys still having an advantage, right? Sure. Yeah. If that's what happened, uh, you know, if uh, if Robert Krolwich was drawn to Andy because they had some sort of similarities. Um, oh, no. I mean, I'm, I'm on record as I, I, I think Andy is supremely talented and was a dick to employees. But I think the reason for his rise wasn't just that. I'm just saying I think it can both be true that um, outlets like WNYC and all the places we've worked for want to diversify, but there's some lingering sort of homophily stuff going on. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I you know, Part of the reason I feel confident in saying that being white is not necessarily um, a benefit, at least in hiring and media, is because like you, I've also been in rooms where people are talking about hiring. And there is a push to hire people who are non-white because there is a push to diversify. It's, it's, it's explicit. It's, explicit. It it's totally explicit. explicit. But it's explicit. It's absolutely explicit. Yeah, yeah. totally. 
Um, all right. Anything else we need to say about this? Are we going to get subpoenaed for? Are we? Are we like? <laughs> we're going to get subpoenaed for saying? You know, Andy has some time on his hands now. Does he want to come on as a as an unpaid producer? Dude, I would like. We could not afford Andy, but I would fucking let him no. produce an episode for us. But I, I, oh my I God. don't. He can produce every episode. This is the part where like I just get into the fucking cancel culture rut. What what annoys me is the idea. Any place he is hired now, after suffering a major professional setback of losing a job at the New York Times, any place he's hired, there will be screaming from people on Twitter for whom no amount of punishment will be enough. The same people who rightfully think that teenagers shouldn't spend the rest of their life in jail for, for literal murder will say this guy should never be able to work again. And I think that's unfair. Any idea what he's going to do next? Uh, No. I mean, I don't, I don't think he has any immediate plans. And I do think he um probably got a buyout. Uh, I don't have any insider knowledge of that, but I, I don't think people should be punished forever. I've been consistent about that. I've said that about people who I think uh, progressives would be much more sympathetic to than Andy, but I, I hope he lands on his feet. He, this like for now, when you Google him, this will be his thing. And I don't think people who have been through a version of that can understand that that's like really terrible. That is very sufficient punishment. Yeah. He's had a bad fucking year. It has not been a great 2021 for Andy, but uh, yeah, I'm, I like, I basically fucking started this podcast, probably like, I'm too biased to talk about this and then talked about it. But I just, people can judge if I'm distorting this because of my friendship with him. They can let me know. But I, um, the idea that, I, again, the idea that I'm supposed to throw him under the bus now fucking disgust me viscerally and, uh, would mark me as a very bad person. Well, you would say the same thing about somebody you didn't like who was fired from, from a job or forced to resign. I mean, I think that's, as I have this, this, Asshole far left professor George Chicharello Mar uh, was placed on leave over some dumbass tweet or tweets he did. I'm not going to bother looking it up. It was like it was just far left edgelord tweets. I defended him. I, I don't think people should get fired unless it's like absolutely necessary. I, I, I strongly believe that America treats workers shittily and I'm not going to throw that out the window just because I don't like the guy. So I just I, I I just hope people don't accuse me of hypocrisy here. I have I have defended people I don't like. So I'm I think I'm applying the same standard. I also recognize I'm human. When you're friends with someone, it makes it very hard to uh look at things in a clear eyed way. I defended Nathan J. Robinson today, so I'd say I'm a hero. Defended him I just saw he he had another take about Twitter stuff. He says that he was fired from the Guardian for tweeting a joke about Israel. I don't trust Nathan J. Robinson. Um, Wait, is, Nathan J. Robinson himself was? Yeah, that he was. He the, was fired from his from his from his column. column. Yeah, but I thought he said cancel culture isn't real, and there's always more to the story. And so. yeah, yeah, funny how that works. Um, yeah, he has a new piece today up at current whatever his current Riddler, whatever his magazine is called. <laughs> current Riddler, <laughs> Riddler Quarterly, current affairs, current affairs. Um, about saying that he was that he made some joke about Israel and uh about you know United States relationship with Israel, and he was he was fired from his Guardian column. Um, I take everything that Nathan. Robinson says with a grain of salt, but um, but I defended him anyway because if that's what happened, well, it shouldn't happen. Can I take one minute to look at this? Just yeah, dude, his brain. I mean, we could talk about it somewhat. His like, I've read stuff of his I've liked. His brain has so fucking melted from um the culture wars. Okay, let's see what you say. Yeah, I mean, it looks like he he tweeted a joke that was sort of taken too seriously by people. Uh, Maybe I'll look more into this after we record this. But yeah, I would defend Nathan Robinson. I don't – anything where it, it has the, the appearance of someone being fired for a tweet, I am usually uncomfortable with even though, you know, I do think people have some obligations uh, via their job to tweet the right way. But I will be generally supportive of people fired for those reasons. But maybe maybe Nathan J. Robinson, uh, who is a man who is capable of both great work and 
really silly knee jerk stuff uh, is a subject for another day. Yeah, let's save that. Okay, that is Andy, uh, who maybe we'll return to at the end. But uh, the other the other major departure is Don McNeil. Yes, so Don McNeil is very well regarded science journalist at the New York Times, who um, resigned this week, this past week after uh, an investigation. Actually, Jesse, can you give the rundown for this one? It's yeah. So so we gave you guys a bit of background about McNeil at the top of the show. Longtime science reporter, um, among other achievements, he's um. Uh, reported on AIDS from Africa, reported from India. He sort of told the stories of dying cancer patients who don't have access to pain meds. All that came to a screeching halt when the Daily Beast ran an article, uh, recently saying that he, on a trip to Peru. So the Times runs these trips for like, um. Rich kids. It, yeah. If you come from like a suburb like mine and you, you're, parents are worried about the horrors that you will only go to like Tufts or the University of Michigan, like a second tier school, like some kind of moron. You need a very competitive uh, college application because just like it's hyper competitive now at the Harvards and the Yales. Um, so you can go on like some sort of trip to broaden your horizons. The New York Times via this company Putney Student Travel, you can pay like five or six thousand dollars and send your kids on a twelve day trip to different places. And does that include airfare? That's a really good question. Uh <laughs> I bet it doesn't. I'm I bet it doesn't. Um Either way, the it's an opportunity for your kids to bolster their college resumes. And, of course, they can pay for direct contact with a New York Times employee, which is, like, very, very exciting if you're, like, if you're that sort of person. Um, Don McNeil was sort of the Times, one of the Times guides on this trip to Peru. And there had been, in a group of about 26 kids, there had been six complaints. And the Beast, the Daily Beast, got hold of sort of the New York Times internal investigation. And this was in 2019. The trip was in 2019. The story just came out at the end of January. And um, the accusations, the most serious one is that he used the N-word. Despite a somewhat misleading headline, I don't think the Beast ever really suggests he used it as a slur. Rather, he mentioned it. That use mention distinction is important. So, so the Beast story didn't really give details about the context in which he mentioned rather than use the n-word uh it also re related from kids and parents that he had said things like he didn't believe in white supremacy and white privilege that he had made derogatory comments about black teens and the story points out and some subsequent reporting from uh the times itself like reporting on itself uh via mark tracy the end result was like the times looked into this dean bakay the executive editor who is black and is from the south Toll said internally that he thought once he heard that Don McNeil had done all this stuff that he was going to fire the guy. Then the paper looked into it and he was punished, but he wasn't fired. No one knows how he was punished. It sounds like a slap on the wrist. Um, that's sort of, that's sort of what originally happened. Then years later, a couple years later, this Daily Beast story comes out. Um, it causes a lot of online outrage, but the reporting was incredibly vague so like you imagine a new york times science writer who has reported from you know africa and india saying white supremacy doesn't exist it, it's really unclear what that means or how offended we should be without much more specifics right uh, yeah absolutely 
so so there was this this outrage over a him him mentioning the n-word we didn't originally know the context i'll get to the context in a minute and b the idea that he had said white supremacy wasn't real that he had insulted black teenagers though no one knew what he said and also that he had he had shown um insufficient respect during an indigenous peruvian ceremony i laugh because like if you've traveled, there is this thing where you can like pay to watch some ceremony and it is a little bit like not exploitative because you're often paying for it. But the idea that you're supposed to treat these like touristy ceremonies with like the utmost, I don't know. I, I was also just skeptical that a guy with his background, is he like mocking the shaman performing the ritual? It just, it seemed like such a weird thing to relate anonymously. Right. Like, is he like dancing behind them? Um, <laughs> he like putting put, up bunny put, ears behind yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah. He like put on a grass skirt. And, and I don't, I don't want to pretend like there's nothing he could have done that that would have been like actually offensive. Maybe my problem is just this credulous kind of reporting where I, a teenager was insulted by his lack of deference during a, a teenager who, who, who I think it's worth mentioning. Like, these are the most privileged kids in the fucking world. Yeah. They're, or they are likely you know, to be. We don't know that. We know what the trip costs and who it is marketed right. to. And then – I mean they're, uh, they're American kids going on a New York Times, a $6,000 New York Times trip. They are – you know, they might not be Saudi royalty. No. But – and they were overwhelmingly white, correct? Yes. Yes. This this is gets to part two. So there, there's this outrage and Don McNeil who has like – Basically, as impressive a journalist career as anyone could hope for is forced. And had been at the paper for 47 years. 47 years. Uh, he is forced to resign. And, uh, I can't remember the exact timing, but at some point, either immediately before or after his resignation, it was revealed that 150 of his Times colleagues had signed a letter that uh, sort of has to be read to be believed. I, I'll include a link. I think I was the first person to get a full copy of it, although I didn't get the names. But let me just give a few of the highlights so we can um, talk about the, the standards that currently prevail among at least 150 employees of the New York goddamn time. Do you have any sense of uh, were these newsroom employees, were these the tech guys or tech gals or tech non-binary identities? Um do you have any sense of, of like who the actual signatories were? No, I, I had a conversation with someone who didn't know the full story, but was just basically explaining. And I, I'm, I'm comfortable repeating this because it's something I've heard from someone else too, that between the different sections of the times, there are major differences of opinion. So without uh, getting too speculative or like specific, like you can imagine that maybe when it comes to journalistic norms, the investigative team has a different set of standards than the culture desk, right? Yeah. So, so I think if we did know the full 150 names on this, they wouldn't be distributed equally across, uh, different sections. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh, the one other thing that I want to mention about the, the Daily Beast piece was th this to me was like a subtle reporting and editing issue that maybe you wouldn't notice if you're not a journalist, not, not to be a dick, but like, I think in two different mentions, I forget, there are multiple Daily Beast articles. Twice it is mentioned that McNeil was accused of making sexist uh, comments or comments with sexism. There is no explanation of, of even what those yes. are. Yes. So the point I've been trying to make people to explain why that's a red flag is like, if you're my editor, Katie, and I come to you and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to report that this guy was accused of making sexist comments. And you would, of course, ask me, what did he say? And if I'm like, I don't know. And you say, who said it? Can we use your name? And I said, no. If you're a decent editor, you're just keeping that out of the story entirely, right? Yeah, definitely. 
because there's a lot of discretion that goes into when you think you have something solid enough to publish it. You are taking this thing that was totally private, that was not associated publicly with a guy's name, and you're making it public. That's why journalism like consists of like important responsibilities. And to just say someone said he was sexist when you don't have any of the details is not responsible journalism. And I think when people read things like this, this should make us skeptical. Why isn't the actual statement being included here? Yeah. What are what are we leaving out here? Yes. It that that was the example I used of why I was skeptical of all of the beast reporting. Not just because some of these other accusations were vague, but because they seem to just throw this sexist thing in without even bothering to contextualize it. That tells you they don't have it and that they're relating secondhand accusations. And people think that you can like just get away with saying anything by like, oh, uh, I heard that Katie Herzog eats puppies. But but you obviously can't. I do. You do. That's I was a bad example. But only was, ugly ones. Only ugly ones. Right. That's the context you won't get if you did it. If you just said, I heard Katie Herzog eats puppies. But but no, you can't just say someone said someone said something. People say a lot of things. I mean, this is the whole reason people make fun of Trump because he says people are saying. Right, right. Anyway. Um, okay. So the New York Times 150 employees, uh, this statement they put out that I'll link to is just, it's pretty remarkable. First of all, because it, it includes in a letter to their bosses demanding that Don McNeil be reinvestigated. A, they say intent doesn't matter. These are professional journalists saying that intent doesn't matter. Intent mattering is like one of the cornerstones of of society. Is that not an overstatement that intent mattering is literally one of the things that keeps society functioning? It, it is like in a like in a legal sense, it matters. It matters so much. It matters in just the way that we operate in the fucking world. And and the reason this matter this particular issue is so prominent here is. In his statement to employees, Dean Bacay, uh with Joe Kahn and other higher up there, you read their statement and it seems pretty clear that that uh, McNeil was forced out for using the N-word because they say they say intent doesn't matter, which is crazy for two of the top editorial employees in the newsroom to say intent doesn't matter for 150 employees to say intent doesn't matter. Um is fucking insane. Well, and it's a reversal. It's a reversal of of Bakay's statements after the initial investigation. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. I'm telling this in a disorganized way. But Bakay's initial statement was he looked into this and he found no malice. In other words, he used, intent matters. Yes, intent matters. He used the N word in some sort of situation. We now know. We'll get to that in a minute. He used the N word in the sense of talking about the word being mad. People were offended. He did not intend to offend offend someone the same way you do if. You say something racist, but to at least 150 times employees, intent doesn't matter. This statement talked about how badly they were hurt and how the effect it had on them should affect the investigation. This didn't really have anything to do with them. People disagree about whether you can mention slurs and there's arguments on both sides, but, but this sort of did like lend credence to the idea that like the worst campus norms are creeping into professional workplaces. It it really reminded me reading all of this stuff. It really reminded me of the coddling of the American mind, which is the first time I think I had, I had read a real breakdown on this idea that intent doesn't matter. They have an entire section on this. Um, this is this, this, this new thing that we're supposed to accept as true. Uh, in addition to the safetyism, when these people who weren't there, um, who weren't on this trip say that they were somehow harmed by this thing that they couldn't have possibly overheard because they weren't even there in the fucking first place. Um, yeah. So, so what do we know in terms of the context of him using this word? Right. So after the, the normal battle lines are drawn, I'm on Twitter 
saying, I don't think there's enough evidence to fire him. Everyone else is saying, of course there was. He's clearly racist. Um, but all of us are operating without context. In my defense, I, I think if we don't have context, that is more reason to not fire someone and that it's okay to defend uh, someone when we don't know the charges against them. But Eric Wemple at the Washington Post does the reporting that the Daily Beast was uh, unable or unwilling to do. And here, let me just read this section exactly. Here are the specifics he relates. And... Um, He's he's responsible. He points out this is what he got from six people on the trip. There were 20 more or so he didn't talk to. This might not be the whole thing, but this this seems to encompass what we know. Okay, so actually, wait, let me just explain. Before I read this, McNeil's own statement about departing said that the reason he used the N-word is because he was talking to a kid or kids whose own friend, a 12-year-old, had gotten in trouble for saying the N-word in a video online. So McNeil- I think got kicked out of school, right? No, uh, she was she was suspended, it turns out. So McNeil is explaining, I used the word to ask, I was asking whether this student said the word, and in asking that, I used the word, which is classic example of the difference between using it as a slur and mentioning it. He mentioned the slur to see clarity. It's the Papa John's rule. The Papa John's rule, yes. <laughs> guy- Do you remember this? Papa John was uh, like the president or founder CEO of Papa John's was ousted for using the N-word in the context of referring to somebody like why you shouldn't say the N-word? Couple years ago, makes perfect sense. There's no, there's no use mentioned distinction, Katie. We've all known that. That's always been. Can we? Okay, can we pause here for a moment? Because this is something I've been thinking about a lot. Because this entire saga has resulted in this massive conversation, mostly happening on Twitter, about whether or not it's ever appropriate for a white person to say the N word. And the uh, prevailing, it seems view is that no, in no case can this be uttered ever by a person whose skin is like my my skin tone or whatever your skin tone the per- the prevailing view among us people among among like among ger- yeah among like woke lefty journalists with more power than us i don't agree with this, and I think this is a really dangerous precedent. this idea that intent doesn't matter, I think it's dangerous, I really don't agree with it, and so I've been thinking a lot about whether or not we should use the word. You know, I've never used the word in a derogatory sense. I would never use the word in a derogatory sense. But not that long ago, it was socially acceptable to refer to the to the actual word. And I think that standard should still exist for a couple reasons. For one thing, I think it's like pretty disrespectful to to think that if a black person hears this word used in a non-derogatory context by a white voice, that that person is somehow going to like melt. And I even like, I went and I asked a couple of black people I know if they would be offended to hear me say the word in a non, just to refer to the word. And the response I got was like, not only would I not be offended to hear you say the word, I'm not a fucking snowflake. I'm offended that you would even think that this would offend me. So I, so I actually like, <laughs> and then you said, thank you for being honest, homies. <laughs> we'll believe it. We'll believe it. We'll believe it. Um, but so, uh, so, but the point is like, I actually do think, I, like, I almost think that it is less moral to not use the word because I really think that we should be pushing back on this. And I was giving a lot of thought when we decided we were going to do this episode, whether or not we should use the word. 
I'm not going to use it because I'm legitimately scared to use it. I'm scared that we would get kicked off of iTunes. I'm scared we would get kicked off of Patreon. I'm scared we would lose sponsors, even referring to the word because our skin tone is the wrong color. So I I feel very strange about this. Um, there's a piece in Reason Magazine from last year by Eugene Volok, who's there, who's a First Amendment lawyer, um, who does great stuff on, on free speech. And he, he, he writes the word out. Um, and he, and he, he, he explains why he why like when he's in class talking about this he uses the word and he makes a very compelling argument i think we should all be making the same argument i think that this is a really bad uh precedent um this idea not just that intent doesn't matter but that black people are going to somehow like shrivel and die because they hear a word coming out of a of a, of a white mouth that is uttered many many times a day on streets and in rap songs and whatever it's just like i hate this fucking precedent but i am too scared to actually say the word sure but i mean well a couple things first of all it is I don't, I don't buy the like it's used in rap songs thing. Cause first of all, it is, it is usually dropped R. Second of all, it's just like it's used in a totally different sense by like members. But that's the point is that in different contexts, this word is not going to make anybody fucking traumatized. I mean, apparently it, it does make people traumatized because em- employees at the New York Times says that it does. Well, the problem is we, they say they're traumatized and we're not allowed to say like it, if this, if hearing this word causes you grave harm. You should maybe, I mean, it's like, it's not, it's not identical, but the word kike obviously has horrible history. I'm Jewish. Um, it would be jarring to hear it out of nowhere, but I would, t- if a friend of mine like heard it in this discussion of slurs and felt like really like it, like really jarred them, I'd be like, you, you know, sometimes there are horrible words you hear. The difference, of course, is that in the United States, there's a much longer and worse history of anti-black oppression than just about any other sort of oppression. Although as soon as we get into the oppression Olympics, things get complicated. Cause like, for example, I believe, how do you decide? Like, I, I do think there's a higher rate of anti-Semitic hate crimes at the moment than anti-black ones, for example, like just statistically. So like, or anti-Asian. Yeah. Like who gets to decide? The, the, okay. So it's comp, I always just fall back on it's complicated because I'm, I'm generally torn. But, but either way, I think maybe the stronger point, um, to rely on if we don't think this was enough for McNeil to get fired, and we're, we're going to get to the full context of everything else in a minute, but this is important is, um, like here's John McWhorter in one article he wrote, I'll link to, um, about how he didn't think using the N word should lead to punishment. As late as the 1990s, I did a radio interview about the N-word where it was considered ordinary to utter the word to refer to it by blacks and whites. That's one example. The Times itself does not think this word is too jarring to print. Despite Nicole Hannah-Jones saying in a Twitter thread, uh, I'll try to find my tweet on this and link to it, that the Times doesn't print the word regularly. Bullshit. I think it's bullshit because you can creepily search for the word, which felt a little weird. And in the last year, 20 different Times articles have used it, including the most recent issue of the magazine. Now, they used it last week. Yes, they used it last week um, in 2011, uh, which wasn't, I mean, a decade ago now, which is crazy, but not that long ago. Mashiko Kakutani, she wrote a whole column uh, with the Huck Finn controversy using the word, saying the word should not be changed. People are doing this weird kind of retconning, borderline gaslighting, I would argue, where they pretend that we had like a ironclad historical consensus that you are not to ever mention the word. I do think there's a difference between 
I bet most of those articles in the Times were written by black staffers. There's, maybe you could say there's some difference between putting it in print and saying, or a black guy writing it and a white guy saying it. At a certain point, you're slicing the salami pretty thin. So this idea that like we all knew you could never mention it is just not right. The Times used it regularly. I guess, I guess Nicole Hannah, someone argued to me that 20 times in a year is not regularly. That, that's, stupid like yeah. how often would you use the n-word how is that not regularly um okay should i should i finally actually read this this bit from the wemple piece explaining exactly what don mcneil said or more or less exactly yes okay students largely confirmed and broad outlines mcneil's account of the n-word fiasco but they said that he uttered the epithet in a way they perceived as casual unnecessary or even gratuitous in a discussion of cultural appropriation mcneil scoffed he scoffed katie oh my god how dare he Though the term applies to people in Western countries adopting fashions or other items from other cultures, McNeil offered the example of people all over the world eating imported Italian tomatoes, according to a student in attendance. What's the problem with that? Two students reported coming away with troubling impressions of McNeil's view of white supremacy, with one of them claiming that he said it didn't exist. Again, we'd still sort of... Need more context, but I'll just finish this. Speaking about high incarceration rates of African Americans, McNeil argued that if they engage in criminal activity, that's on them and not on oppressive and racist power structure. Recalls a trip participant who said that the comments were triggering to the group. The participants, however, said that McNeil's opinions didn't disparage African Americans. Um, Okay, so uh, he also points out that this was a not shocking to anyone who was watching this unfold. This was a predominantly white trip, given who it was marketed to, that these kids were privileged. Um, there's also like that idea that you know that they were triggered by it. Uh, How are these white kids triggered by this by his use of the N word? Well, no, they said he was okay. So this is also this is the the worst. I think the worst or most serious allegation, other than the N word, is one more time speaking about high incarceration rates of African Americans. McNeil argued that if they engage in criminal activity, that's on them, not on an oppressive and racist power structure. We could philosophize all day about this, but he's basically expressing like a common conservative viewpoint that if you commit a crime, it's not you can't blame society for it. If he really stated it that bluntly, I sort of, I'd argue it's an oversimplification. You can partially blame society for a lot of things. I, I guess I'm a libcock, but, um, I, I don't see how that could possibly be a firing offense. Like that is a mainstream conservative position. No. Yeah. I mean, and we should say, like, we should emphasize he was not technically fired. Um, but he was right. He was resigned and the only justification, well, still the only justification offered by the time directly pointed to the, I think to the N word thing. Although I guess this could also be in the category of him of not non malice, but like, it, it's just like, I'm sure that opinion has appeared in the pages of the New York times. Not that long ago. It, to me, it's just about, we've talked about drawing the lines of what's fireable and I'm not, I saw some people being like, well, that's definitely fireable. I don't, I don't view that as fireable. I disagree with that. But like, if that's the line, you can't hold that opinion at the New York Times who, I don't know, man, I'm not comfortable with that. I mean, this really shows you how out of touch some New York Times, uh, staffers are with the American people. You know, this is not, that is, that is not a white supremacist viewpoint to say that like personal responsibility, um, you know, is important. Like this is just, it's so fucking out of touch. 
And and not only that, but he didn't, you know, this one participant, and again, there may have been others who didn't talk to him, but what this participant specifically said, McNeil's opinions didn't disparage African-Americans. So it sounds much, again, there's still some stuff we don't know, despite uh, Wemple advancing the story. But like you're saying, it sounds like he's basically saying, like, if you commit a crime, don't blame that on society or racism. You, you which, yeah, again, I think is a little oversimplified, but how... How is that a firing offense? What are we what are we left with here where we should feel good that um McNeil was was fired? I I will say like I think he has a reputation as being like a cranky, cantankerous, difficult old guy. He had he had sparred with um the Times management over union issues back in 2012, but again, this is so much less damning in my view than the vague weak tea served up by the beast that I it worries the hell out of me that people think this is fireable. Well, he wasn't fired. Yes, I'm sorry <laughs> that he was. He was forced forced right. to resign. Um, also, the, well, also his 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 letter was bizarre because he basically also endorsed the like the disintegration of intent as mattering. Like it was a sort of like groveling, begging for forgiveness. Yeah, although that could be because he hopes to get another job. Although I'm I'm. Yeah, I wonder what the terms of his uh, his his resignation were. I mean, you know, it's definitely possible that there were financial incentives here, um, maybe pension stuff. Um, you know, smarter to resign than get fired, especially at the end of your career. Um, but this does not look good for the paper. I don't think. I mean, I'm sure other people would argue that this looks great for the paper, that the paper is anti-racist. Um, but I don't think that it's the job of the New York Times to be anti-racist or to be activist in the first place. Or even if it is, you could – I mean – Again, it's such a potentially abusable term. I wouldn't want to use it. But even if it is the job to be anti-racist, how far should that extend? That extends to people not being able to say whatever he said about crime without even disparaging. Like if he if he talked about like black crime, then at least you're getting into the area of like problematic. But it sounds like he didn't even say black crime. He said, if you commit a crime, it's your fault, which is like not not outside of the mainstream at all. Yeah. So what are the lessons here, Jesse? I think what I'm taking away from this is never go on a trip to Peru with a bunch of idiotic children. Yeah, I think the lesson here is the real menace is privileged white kids. I will say it was amazing all the people tweeting about this. Don McNeil is obviously privileged. He's a famous reporter. Um, but the people who talked about like a white guy on a trip, racist, evil, who who talked about sort of his privilege – Without he was the help. <laughs> he's literally getting paid to keep these kids entertained. Although I would imagine he's getting paid quite well. But like, yeah. these are in all likelihood the children of bankers and lawyers. That does not mean that they can't be victimized. But this was literally a group of mostly white kids who are freaked out that they encountered a conservative. I mean, this is not... We will not be like watching documentaries about the horrors of this trip. No one had to eat anybody in the mountains of Peru. This is not the way people just inflated the harm. We still don't know like how we should evaluate any harms here because there's still details we don't know. But like based on what Wempel reported, like Jesus Christ, man, it's like we're trying to um advertise our weakness and patheticness to conservatives. <laughs> it's working. Um, you know, I think the only other thing that we should probably mention here is uh, the response from the the Times Union. Um, clearly, they released a statement uh, saying that, you know, nobody should be fired for free speech um, and defending um, Don McGill. <laughs> okay. 
to be fair, it gets complicated here because basically they, my understanding is if he'd been fired, they would have a legal obligation to go to bat for him. And they did. I was told they did go to bat for him in 2019. The fairer critique is that the Times News Guild, whatever other good work they do, clearly takes a politicized approach to like when they will and won't extend themselves. Like, for example, when when Brett Stevens uh, criticized Nicole Hannah Jones, and I, I would argue that like at a healthy pop, this is one element of like the Gawker legacy and the Dan Savage legacy. That's good. I think it's good when like within a publication, you'll take both sides of an issue and sort of argue with one another a little bit. Yeah. Um, when Brett Stevens wrote a column critical of the 1619 project, like the Times News Guild tweeted and then deleted this bizarre, grammatically questionable statement criticizing Brett Stevens. So why that? Why, you know, they, they're, they're clearly part of the job of this union or what it sees as its job is enforcing some degree of ideological conformity. For all I knew, they do, for all I know, they do heroic work on the actual labor issues too. They did defend Don McNeil on this, but like their public, persona seems questionable and right you would think that there would be some sense of solidarity where the whole point of solidarity is not to be like we will defend you unless there's some evidence you did something wrong like in both you can make a strong case that in both these instances the paper treated unfairly employees who were already investigated like but instead you have empl- – I bet some of those 150 people are active in the guild. They're literally writing a letter to asking management to reinvestigate a colleague who was already cleared. That is not good. I don't see how you can be pro-labor and then do that. You're supposed to sort of give your colleagues a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and to treat them as being on the same team as you, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what I don't know what else to say. Um, it would be useful to have a list of those names. Just I wouldn't want to like drag them, but just like if someone doesn't think intent matters, especially in a case like this, it's useful because I just know not to trust anything they read basically ever again. I mean, wh- how how does intent not matter? I don't know. I don't know. But this is the this is the standard we're coming to. And I think that's really, really distressing. And we should all be pushing back against this, which is why I'm going to ask you, Jesse, to use the N word. (laughs) Be a hero. Be a hero, Jesse. Jonathan Haidt told me in when were it would be like 2015, 2016, I would often um disagree with him i thought i i've always liked his work i particularly liked his his moral psychology stuff the righteous mind but i thought some of his campus stuff was like overblown i was like my argument which is crazy wrong in retrospect was like okay these weird campus kids they get to a real world workplace and they try to pull this shit and their bosses immediately pull them into a side room they're like look Words aren't violence. You can't work here if you think words are violence. Your, your choice, you can leave. Someone else will take your place. Pretty much the opposite happened. Like the bosses started saying, we agree that words are violence, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I remember like a couple years ago at The Stranger having this very heated conversation with a former colleague and him saying like, why do you care about these college kids? And I said, because they don't stay on campus. Uh, well, look at that. To, to see Dean Bacay and Joe Kahn say that intent, like that's, this is like Alice in Wonderland shit. That's crazy, man. How, I don't know. 
I'm really curious to see what's going to happen with the uh, many, many mentions of the N-word in the New York Times. Like, are they going to scrub it from the archives? I would honestly not be surprised if they go ahead and scrub it from the archives. Then they can also scrub, scrub the R-slur, the T-slur, the F-slur, the G-slur, which is gamer. Well, I, was, I already said on Twitter, like, just replace it with gamer. And it has a impact. <laughs> All right, Jesse, anything else about this? Uh, no, I just, I'm, it's a weird feeling because I know at every journalistic institution, including the Times, and I've talked to a lot of these people, there are a lot of people who still like respect the diff, A, the difference between being a journalist and an activist, and B, like they understand they need to sometimes separate their own feelings from what's going on and, and look at things more dispassionately. It just scares the hell out of me that things have gotten so bad again that so many people in the New York Times thinks intent doesn't matter. Cause I think some of these evolving norms aren't necessarily compatible with good or thoughtful journalism. And I think in the long run, someone pointed out to me that 150 names is a pretty small fraction of the overall Times newsroom. Maybe we should take that as a reason to be optimistic, but. It's still a lot of people, and I think it's mostly the younger ones. So, like, what is this shit going to look like in five or ten years? That's the question. I mean, Becky's not going to be there forever. I don't know if he's uh, in any way, like, at this point, upholding um, the old standards for journalism. Um, but I would imagine that he will be replaced by somebody um, with a different ideology, if you get what I'm saying. Well, what's interesting is he – he uh, the Times retirement age is 66, which I think he's going to hit next year. Yeah. So one way you could interpret that is, like – I am, of course, vastly oversimplifying about a man and an institution I don't know much about. But just knowing that he's basically about to retire and end a long and storied career, one interpretation is like, let's take a last stand to actually like try to nudge the paper in a good direction and stand up for these journalistic values, which maybe he's doing in private. Maybe. But this statement doesn't help that. And I wish I knew whether like the sort of rumor or speculation is that Salzberger, the publisher – applied some pressure on him and Khan. I have no idea if that's true, but I I'm curious if Dean Bacay really know thinks that intent doesn't matter. Why don't we just have him come on the co podcast and just lay this all out in the open? Yeah. Nicole Hannah Jones too. She could come on the podcast and to explain to us why um, intent doesn't matter except when it does matter. Well, the more frustrating thing she did was um, one of the Daily Beast stories, I should have mentioned this earlier, but one of them said that in a meeting about Don McNeil, she was like, I'm going to go call up all the kids on this trip and figure out what happened, which like, it would be really insane for Times journalists to just insert themselves into like an ongoing HR thing and, and inappropriate in a lot of ways. There's just a level of conflict there that renders it a very bad idea. I mean, if she was going to do it as a reporter, I think it's different. If she's doing it... As a, as a like self-appointed HR manager. Well, no, I, I, I think if you're, if, if someone is in trouble at your organization, you're not really in a position to report fairly on it. I don't think. I, I just think there's inherent con. Yeah. So. But I, I do like, I want, I, I would love to read like the Ben Smith column on this. I don't think there will be one. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, it's good when, when, when organizations like report fairly and accurately on themselves. I do not think that she is the person to do it. Right. But, but either way, she subsequently was like, she said that this never happened. I never said this in a meeting. She, she did say like, if I wanted to report on it, so what? So I guess, um, yeah, but, but she was like this, she said something like, this is why you don't rely on like anonymous sources. Well, Okay. Yes, that's a good point. What about anonymous sources who are teenagers on a trip two years ago? Should we not rely on them? 
Like, why are you not as skeptical about this story about one of your colleagues? Right. Well, she also so the Free Beacon, a conservative outlet, um, a young reporter named Aaron uh, Sibarium. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. So he went and did. We'll post a link to this. He did some like good reporting on um, on this whole saga, and he he reached out to Nicole Hannah Jones and some other Times reporters. Um, uh, who had, who, you know, he searched their Twitter for the N word and he reached out to them and he said, like, well, does intent matter when you say it? Um, and Nicole Hannah Jones, instead of like commenting, she posted a screenshot of his email, which was totally professional and included her, his phone number. And she left it up until she, she left it up until this piece was published. I think it was up for at least a day. This kid's like, you know, fucking cell phone number. She tweeted it out to 500,000 people and, and clearly knew about it because people were commenting, you know, his phone numbers here. Yeah. I, again, you just have to like, it's just the way within the, the nightmare of the online world, there's very different standards for different people and their behavior. Right. And if her, if she didn't intend to do that, if that was a mistake, I think that, I think that you could have, you could have mistakenly done that. The thing to do would be to erase it and to apologize, but you know, intentions don't matter. Uh, okay. Is that it? That's it. Let's uh, hang this one up. Okay. Uh, you can always get in touch with us at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. I know Katie is incredibly eager to say, the n-word so maybe if you email her she'll agree to uh if you want more content like this you can get many extra episodes dozens of old ones uh patreon.com slash blocked reported for five dollars a month you get three extra episodes a month reddit.com slash blocked reported barpod.org our merch store where things have uh picked up a little bit since we threatened to take it out behind the barn and shoot it but we still need you to buy more shirts so you have to do that yeah, we definitely need you to join the Patreon too. It's very, very important for the success of this podcast. That's the most, that's the most important. This has been Blocked Reported. I'm Jesse Single and remember, intent doesn't matter except when it does, except when it doesn't, except when it does. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, don't ever pour a beer out on a colleague's head unless that colleague is Jesse Single. Mm-hmm.